Before diving into today's episode, did you know that this podcast has a supporters club? By becoming a member, you not only gain access to exclusive content, but also play a crucial role in supporting your favorite podcast. See the link in the episode description to find out more. Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, I think episode 15 went pretty well, but I'm ready to start another app as part of the Double Up special this week. And since it's only a matter of time for the Overcone does something else stupid, I'm gonna have to look into... Yeah, I see what he's trying to do, ladies and gentlemen. You know what? I'm going to deal with that issue in episode 17. But for right now, I'm going to go ahead and go back into something I really love. Movies. Well, I've finally finished another movie marathon, and clearly Spider-Man 3 isn't the worst movie I've seen, nor is Jurassic Park 3, and even Alien vs. Predator has its charm. The first one, not the sequel. Oh god, not the sequel. But as time changes, so does opinions, and this is the time to address it. Welcome to the J-Man Show here on J360 Radio. You know, building J360 Productions takes a lot of time, effort, and money. It also takes different studying methods, such as looking at movies, in particular bad ones. But as stated in episode 10, this usually depends on opinions and preference. Now, there can be a factor that alters this view. Yeah, I didn't bring this up last time, but that factor is called time. See, much like we do... Movies age, and in some cases, they're a relic and a record of their time. Like, when you watch an 80s movie, you know, that isn't a party film, like an action film, pretty much like how Predator, Terminator, well, anything that had either Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sly Stallone in it, it had that gritty feel, and that synthesized sound, and lots and lots of explosions, right? A one-man army, that was the relic of the time. And you know, the 70s had black exploitation and a soulful look into the inner cities of different protagonists that are trying to survive in a corrupt world where Vietnam was on the rise and the age of Aquarius with disco music and, and, and also some funk. And the 90s, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do this, do this out of order, but you know, the 90s were a time where things were radical, filled with New Jack Swing, Electro Pulse music, grunge, gangster rap. Shaquille O'Neal thought he could act and rap. Bugs Bunny also teamed up with Michael Jordan, and 16-bit gaming was on the rise, not to mention having the best Saturday mornings in programming history. However, as we stumble through the rest of the new millennium, interesting films were made, some good, some bad, and all are welcome. Our preferences are strong attributes, but there are times when we can be blinded by our nostalgia and create bias. Like, you know, how the show or movie you love as a child doesn't appeal to you anymore? Yet you will still hold it in high regard because you don't want to change the mindset and ruin your memories. I know I feel the same way about that with some episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark. Don't worry, we'll get into a debate about that some other time. But unfortunately, you may have missed out on some qualities that deserve a second look. So that's why we're saying F you to our bias today. And we're going to give some redemption to some poorly received films. You know, some that while are bad in popular opinion are quite entertaining films on their own speed. I managed to find three significant films that I had on a listing after my movie marathon, and I think now's a good time to discuss them. 
Keep in mind, this is my take on the films, and by mentioning the title of some of these movies could cause some of you to have aneurysm. But since this is the J-Man Show and it's episode 16, I'm not sorry, and you can all handle it. Butts will be hurt! At least that's what I say every time a DCEU movie shows up. But don't get it twisted. I'm only making fun of them because they shoot themselves in the foot. I'm not making fun of DC or the characters. I'm just making fun of the way Warner Bros. is handling the film franchises. You know, when they stop shooting themselves in the foot, then I'll stop making jokes about them. But anyway, onwards to our list for the day. It's a top three list of some of these films that were made throughout, you know, the 90s up to now. Now, there's we're not going to cover every single film. This is actually going to be a start of a segment that I'm going to have on here periodically. You know, film redemptions. Yep, because you see, there is such a thing as a poorly reviewed film. It might have came out at the wrong time. It might have been, you know, announced and then eventually they got around to it because of schedule conflicts. Or some films actually went through development hell and executive meddling. Or piss poor distribution, mismanaged money. Or, you know, to sum it all up, nobody gave a damn. Or any sort of combination of all of what I've just said. And then there's the idea that some of these films are actually watchable. They couldn't win anything, God help them. But you know, the thing is that they're made. But sometimes you get bored and you need to watch something to carry on throughout your daily lives. I know I do sometimes. Because you know, not a lot of things happen in Delaware. So, you know, I have to make my own kind of party every week. And I do. Hopefully when I move, things will change. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Uh, But you know what? These three films here, they kind of need a redemption. So we're going to start off with number three. And our lucky lackluster stallion is Godzilla 98. Pausing a little bit for the groans and the what the fucks that the audience are doing. Look, J360 Legion, hear me out on this. I know this and you know this. That damn thing in that movie is not Godzilla. We all know. But the thing deals with New York being attacked by a monster and of course, it isn't the legendary kaiju we know and love. I remember when they were developing this back in the day as a kid. I was thinking, Godzilla is finally going to stomp the Big Apple. Now, the last time he did that was in the 60s movie called Destroy All Monsters. The monsters were destroying all the major cities on Earth because they were under control by aliens. And it's a very damn good movie. It was intended to be the end of the classic Godzilla series, believe it or not. I mean, just think about the concept. Godzilla versus Liberty City. Cool, huh? And that's what I had the feeling of for this movie. It would be a modern Godzilla movie on U.S. shores in my youth. Because, you see, the other 90s films didn't land here yet. And Godzilla 2000 was two years away. It was also directed by Roland Emmerich. You know, the, the man who created ID4. So how could it go wrong? And no, please don't bring up the last ID4 movie. As far as I'm concerned, Independence Day never had a sequel. Whatever the hell came out last year was just a tech demo. Nothing more, nothing less. Like, people in my family try to remind me that that thing exists, you know? But as far as I know, there is no resurgence. But moving on. Now, how could it go wrong? To make a long story short, the monster itself. I remember when they were building this film, like, we never knew what the monster looked like, except for the footsteps. And you see, as the footsteps were there, you could tell it was going to be something designed a lot differently, because Godzilla's feet doesn't look like that, you know? And just the way that the eye looked, you know, when it came out of the water and stuff, that was awesome back in the day. The marketing was beautiful for that film, and you never knew what the monster looked like until it was time for the premiere. And I remember when I went with my parents to see the premiere of it. It was, uh, finally saw what the monster looked like, and that was not Godzilla. Believe it or not, you know how Godzilla is like technically, um, 
God, it's debatable what he is. Some people say he's like a T-Rex, and then some people say he's like a mutated lizard. Whatever, he's just fucking awesome. But you see, that monster was actually a mutated iguana after an allied nuclear testing happened on an island in the movie. And so that nuclear iguana was coming over to New York to lay its eggs in Madison Square Garden. It was pregnant and everything else. Which isn't weird, considering that that's what lizards do, you know? They can change their sex and do a lot of wild stuff. But, you know, the thing is, even though it was designed differently, it had Godzilla's roar, you know? And it had none of its durability. Hell, even its breath power was weak. That little explosion that you see with the cars and everything in the movie, if you think back, that was actually its version of the atomic breath. And it was just, you know, you really had to, like, focus and think about it for a minute, that that was pretty much... Yeah, exactly. I, I, I can't even finish that sentence. I'm just going to throw that out. Yeah, I mean, but that's just one of its problems. You know, it was like Columbia Pictures just bought the rights from Toho to do a Godzilla film and just farted all over it, bringing a stink pie for everybody to enjoy. But only if you look at it from that angle. There are actually good things about this movie. See, the action sequences of the monster running through New York and battling the military using its agility and its smarts. That was actually cool, although the CGI has aged by these standards. A lot of us are spoiled by the Avengers and everything else, and, you know, when it's hard to go back to 98 when you look at how things have evolved in, like, 2012 on up. And I'm just being, you know, honest there. Because, like, if you look at how Iron Man stuff has evolved in every single movie, it's kind of hard to go back. The characters in the film, they all played a well-rounded role. And it was led by a phenomenal cast, you know? Even the most annoying person was accurate, especially if you've ever been to New York, or any inner city for that matter. Like, Matthew Broderick did an awesome job as uh, Nick DiPopolos, the lead um, the lead scientist, you know what I'm saying? The one that actually knew about, like, how Godzilla was evolving. Well, I shouldn't even call him Godzilla. We'll just call him by his given name, uh, Zilla. You know what I mean? We'll just call him by that. Broderick did a fantastic job as the main guy. Not to mention that it also had Gene Reno in there as the French agent that was secretly there on his own mission. But the thing is, it wasn't like a stereotypical type, oh, you share information with me, I share information with you. In the end, they all actually had to work together. And this is after Matthew Broderick got kicked out of, you know, the investigation handling Godzilla because he had top secret information that he gave to his college girlfriend. You all know that subplot in the movie. But the thing is, is that in the end, everybody got redeemed and everybody got you know, to solve the case of what they wanted to. And, you know, as I describe this, and I'm trying to not go into this too much because I got a lot to cover, but you actually do give a damn about the human characters in this movie. You know what I mean? Which is rare considering if you ever watch, like, classic Godzilla films, you don't really care about what happens to the people. You just want to see giant monsters battle it out, right? You just want to see Godzilla just run over there and rip the Japanese coast a new one. I know I do. But, you know, that's just the fun of the whole thing. Because they're also pointing out a fact what happens when you do a lot of nuclear testing. Ended up waking a pissed off monster up. But this one on the other hand, you know, pretty much there is no kaiju versus kaiju in this film. Which is debatable whether it's essential for a monster film or not. You know, I mean if it's a Toho based film, that's cool. But I kind of like seeing Godzilla be like a threat. Because it's an event for like, you know, man versus beast. And a beast that they inadvertently created. You know what I'm saying? Restitution that you have to pay for. Because they do say we create our own demons, and Godzilla, in a way, is like their demon, in addition to being a protector. But this particular movie, you know, every character had a goal in addition to their main one of surviving the monster. You see what I'm saying? And then the baby Zillas. 
if you remember back on the classic Godzilla films, yeah, I'm going to use that as reference because it has the name, for goodness sakes. The baby Zillas, they were actually a threat to the human race. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you think back, like, none of the baby Godzillas were, you know, I, I don't think I really liked any of the baby Godzillas in the classic one. Except for when that one grew up to become Godzilla Jr. and Godzilla vs. Destroya. Because he actually held his own and he fought against the actual Destroya monster, you know, while Godzilla was having that meltdown. I know you all seen that movie. Anybody that knows Godzilla movies have definitely seen that movie. But you see, the thing is, they were actually a threat to the human race's existence in this movie. You know, he, and to make, to make matters even crazier is, is that Zilla had more use for the garden in one movie than the Knicks did since Patrick Ewing's retirement. And I'm just saying that as a Sixers fan, you know I gotta share the love. And ironically, the NY has a better record than us this year, so hush. But still, it's not good enough. Anyway, it was like a legion of eggs in there. And you know, much like Jurassic Park, they came attacking with the need to feed. If anything, this movie borrowed heavily from The Lost World, I want to say. Because I think The Lost World came out a year before this one did. Or no, a year or so. I want to say that. Because in 1993, Jurassic Park came out. And I think um, everybody was still feeling, you know, the survival against dinosaurs or so. Um, from 1995. I think that's when The Lost World came out, if I'm not mistaken. It's like this. None of the Godzilla offspring ever became threats to the human race. You know, I do have to give the movie props for taking that angle. That That's actually pretty cool. Those monsters were coming after those humans, especially when the eggs started cracking apart and they actually got the scent of the humans. You know, it, it was only a matter of time. It also led into the actual climax of the movie because when they managed to destroy the baby Zillas by destroying Madison Square Garden, the real Zilla came back because they thought they killed it. But as soon as it came back and saw the dead babies and then saw the humans that led to the attack... <laughs> it was pissed so as it was pissed you know they managed to use the monster's rage against it by trapping it within the suspension cables on that bridge for the military to finish it off with missiles it was so angry it wasn't even thinking you know and it was cool it was a way of seeing the humans actually you know do something right because lord knows half the time they don't you know they needed a strategy and it also gave matthew broderick the ability to redeem himself to the military and become a hero and he managed to get his reporter girlfriend in the end so you know in a way like i said you'll care about the actual human characters in this movie now with that being said this movie is not the best monster flick matter of fact it's about average i mean it has the trimmings of a classic monster film you know like any sort of b-movie film that sci-fi would make you know it, it has that going for it it's good on its own, but the problem is is that they took this film and they slapped the Godzilla name on it. It ruined itself. It pretty much became a punchline in major Godzilla films that followed it. Like in 2000, like in Godzilla 2000, they said that the US encountered a monster that they thought was Godzilla. And then Godzilla himself eventually blasted the monster in Final Wars just to prove that there can only be one. You know, and they, and they bought the rights and everything of that monster's design to do that. So that, that's that's awesome. But, you know, the movie in itself did leave an opening for a sequel. But the sequel never came to pass because of low box office sales. And I think people weren't really interested in so. But, you know, it, it's a whole list of factors why that sequel was never made. In essence, because it did lead to a cartoon series where, sure, it was the same monster. But it was him using Godzilla's powers. I mean, they actually managed to put the atomic blast 
in that series. And not to mention it was Kaiju versus Kaiju. So, you know, and, and it was enjoyable. It was an enjoyable series. So I'm going to go ahead and just give that movie a redemption because it actually is enjoyable to watch on its own. If you just realize that it's not a Godzilla film and you just don't call it Godzilla, you know, maybe call it like a uh, Raptor invasion or, you know, yeah, something like that. You know what I mean? Just coming up with generic titles for it because in a way it was kind of a generic movie. But the thing is, is that you don't just take a movie and just slap like the title to a well-known franchise because that's what pisses off fan bases. You know what I'm saying? Not to mention a bunch of reboots that do the same thing. Which, by the way, I, I really don't know how that Matrix one is going to turn out. But I leave that all up to you. But you see, with those five factors I said, and you just have to disregard the title, it doesn't need to be labeled as a bad movie. It is watchable. It is entertaining. Especially if it's like a Saturday night where, you know, you need that time and you just want to watch something. Now, our next film is actually three years old. And I think this one was more of a mismarketing approach. It's called Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Now, I remember watching this movie with its prequel back to back with my father. It's one of those deep visual, tough talk, ham-fisted pulp movies. It had everything that was enjoyable about the 2005 film. And if you all remember 2005, 2005 was a tough time to love film because they were just grasping at straws then. That's when all a lot of the reboots and a lot of making TV shows in the movies came about. But the thing is, is this. The superhero movie boom was still steadily getting to where it needed to be. Now, it really took off in 2008, but, you know... 2005 also led to Daredevil, and I think they were planning out, um, you know what, I'm not opening up those wounds, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, some people claim that this movie was a bit over the top in some places, but you gotta remember that Sin City is a Frank Miller property. There is no boundaries in a Frank Miller property, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it served its purpose by telling you other stories that parallel and come before events that happened in the first film. You know, I think what really killed its success was, you know, its release time in spring instead of winter, because the first one came out in wintertime. You know, during December, it was more of the anchor movie, I should say. And the nine-year wave from 2005 probably, you know, added to people losing interest in it. You know, if it got handled like its predecessor, we might it might have gotten better reviews and possibly people taking a chance on a Sin City 3. But I'm going to tell you what it had going for it. It had Eva Green. You all know Eva Green. I know you do. And she portrayed Ava Lord. And let me tell you something. She's sassy, sinister, and sexy to the point where she was just too dangerous to live. And if anything about the Sin City films, they are accurate to the books that they present. If all of you that are out there complaining that, Oh, you know, certain of these movies don't really live up to the source material. Them Sin City movies were pretty damn decent. I mean, like, you know, if you look at that particular story, A Dame to Kill For, those scenes where Ava Lord is naked and pretty much just having men just bow to her whim, it happens in that movie. Like, the poor reviews alone probably will turn you off from it, but here's the thing. If you like pulp-type films, you gotta check this movie out. The visuals are great. Like, okay, considering that... It's kind of like having a 10-year sequel. Sometimes 10-year sequels don't work out unless nostalgia is backing it. Unless it's really marketed well. Like Dumb and Dumber 2, for instance. You know, like how long it took to actually get that movie. But, you see, it had the nostalgia factor going for it. So that that's why that movie came about. And some people are actually fans with it. But you see, the thing is, going back to Sin City, though, 
Sin City had its fans there for a while, but now, you know, unless the hardcore fans that were really new and this movie was coming out like I did, you know, they didn't get to, you know, it didn't get the market appeal like it did because it wasn't marketed right. You know, it's, it's just like one of those things like, you know, we had to wait because Robert Rodriguez had a lot of other projects to do. You know, some of the other people that signed on are not living anymore, you know. You know, like Brittany Murphy and Michael Clark Duncan, they, they've long since passed on before this movie was even greenlit. So, you know, they chose not to recast her character, but, you know, they went ahead and they had Dennis Habert filling in for Michael Clark Duncan. And also, Clive Owen couldn't make it for this film because of scheduling conflicts, too. So we had to settle on Josh Brolin filling in Dwight's shoes. And the point of this movie is, is that you got to see Dwight... Before, you know, he had his face reconfigured in the Big Fat Kill. Like, you had this story here about, like, how certain people came into their presence. And then you had Marvin, his story going on, which was awesome. And then you also had, like, how Nancy was carrying on after um, Hardigan's death in the first one. Like, you know, allegedly she's just gone crazy. Like, kind of like a reverse Harley Quinn in a way. Because she really did love this man. But you see what happens when you are in love and you lose the one you love, right? And she went after the Rourkes. And then, like, you know, the Rourkes were already, um, you know, set up in the first one. And this time you got to see pretty much them pay their restitutions in this film. So, you know, it's like at least a sequel was made that tied up some loose ends. Even though this is Sin City and there's a lot more loose ends yet to be tied up. And I hope that they manage to go on ahead and make a Sin City 3. And get me on it because I really could use the, you know, use the experience working on a movie like that. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned and considering that, now I don't want to use my bias on this because we're supposed to say F.U. to bias. But I always love pulp films, you know what I mean? I always love anti-heroes, uh, black and white, pretty much, you know, everything about the Sin City films. I love that kind of stuff and I really like to see more of it. I love femme fatales. I love hard-boiled detectives and pretty much trying to survive in a world that you know really has left you behind like pretty much how all this bs that's going on now with the government and stuff like that i feel more like a hard-boiled detective nowadays in real life than i ever did before you know what i'm saying so it's just interesting and, and that's why i always hold those films in high regard so sin city a dame to kill for you know for me i'm gonna redeem it because it it, it doesn't deserve any of the negative flack that people throw on it. Now I can understand if you don't understand the characters. And the tones. And maybe when Frank Miller did the spirit. You just didn't care for any of his properties anymore. It is what it is. You know. <laughs> but you're just going to have to realize this. That you just got to give stuff a chance. You know what I mean. Try again. Like I, I, I tell you all. Like for any of these films that I do redeem. Like just go to the red box. And rent them. And just watch them for a while. And see if you actually agree. And if you agree great. And if you don't. Well you don't. It is what it is. Now, we're going to have to move on to number one. <laughs> you probably won't let me live this down. Number one gets a whole lot of flight because it really is a bad movie. But the thing about number one is, it's much like The Room. It's so bad, it's good. And you'll know number one based off of this jingle right here. Oh yeah, I'm digging that up. Turns out the number one movie that's going to be redeemed in J360 Productions this episode 
is the 1993 classic, and I'm using quotes on that, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, the Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> the $41 million bomb that just polarizes fans everywhere. You know, it cost $41 million to make, but it only made $21 million at the box office. And I don't know, I think I was one of them, because, see, me and my pops, we went to go see the movie in the theaters. And not only did I actually go to see that, I actually bought merch. I mean, I bought the Super Mario Brothers movie storybook, I <laughs> bought the action figures. I mean, it, it was interesting. It, it, no matter how you splice it, it's still a part of my life. You know what I mean? And it's a part of anybody's life that was out there, you know, that's around my age. There is no way you could not have known about this movie, even though you try to make, you try to forget. But there's no way you could ever forget about this movie. And the fact that Dennis Hopper, who recently deceased not too long ago, he hated it. The late Bob Hoskins, he hated it. <laughs> And, um, I think John Leguizamo looks back on it fondly, you know, because he played as Luigi. But, and then I guess Samantha Harris, who played Princess Daisy, probably, you know, looks back on it favorably now. You know, I'm, and I'm saying that as a guess, but the thing is, the movie was that bad. But you see, the thing is, there's some reasons behind it. See... Like, during my little hiatus there for a minute because of, you know, studying and stuff, I actually took some time to rewatch the film. And, you know, I have fond memories of being there with my dad watching it. You know what I'm saying? Like, being there at the theater sitting back and, you know, honestly, I mean, it didn't make sense then. And now it actually is accurate to the bullshit that's going on now with the government. I mean, everything is actually dark and brooding. The other dimension is running low on resources. Hell, I mean, they're trying to run our resources down here. And Dennis Hopper's portrayal of Koopa is very similar to Donald Trump's behavior. I mean, if you ever go back and watch the movie, right, you pretty much see that he's acting just like the 45th retrograde. <laughs> Not to mention the people that are helping him along the way are incompetent and in acting just like them friggin' Goombas. It's crazy, you know? I mean, if you do not believe me, go and take a look at some of those clips off of YouTube. I mean it. And his girlfriend in the film, Lena, acts just like Kellyanne Conway. And it's right up to the part where she electrocutes herself into a wall using the meteorite, which is the MacGuffin of the film. Keep in mind, these aren't the only reasons why I'm redeeming it. For all its bizarre flaws, I mean, it did get a few things right in terms of canon context, you know? Mario and Luigi did have to rescue a princess, whether it was Peach or Daisy. It was Daisy in the movie. Luigi's love interest is Daisy. And Mario did have a girlfriend before Peach named Pauline, which Daniela, the girl that he was dating in the movie, has the middle name of Pauline and is based off of. And then there were mushrooms and bombs and bullet bills in the film. And, you know, considering that this is 1993... The brothers actually used super scopes to defeat Koopa. I mean, that's a bonus for all of us retro gamers out there because while the damn thing ate batteries like a Game Gear, I mean, how cool is it to see it being used against the final villain of the film? I mean, as I saw that, you know what I did? 
I went ahead and I popped Yoshi Safari right in the Super Nintendo, right? And I had a good time blasting with it until it ran out of batteries and I lost. Well, I mean, come on. The, the damn thing could really eat up some batteries. I mean, it took like, what, six AA batteries to power the thing? And then you still had to aim for the receiver. And the Super Scope 6 actually did have some great games for it. You know, believe it or not. Like Battle Clash, Metal Combat. I might actually play those on the Power Play now that I think about it. I still have mine. I'm going to have to get me a old-ass TV, though. But we'll see how we go from there. Moving back onto the movie, though. The main reason that I am redeeming this film is the cheese. Like I said before, it's so bad. It's good. It's perfect for a Saturday matinee. Like, with Godzilla, even. You know, it was made during a time when the canon was new. And they could do whatever they want, and they did. Like, sure, the end result of the film actually gives more what-the-fucks than anything, but you have to remember the franchise is based around two plumbers that have to save an easily kidnapped princess from an evil monarch who leads an army of turtles and evil mushrooms through eight worlds in tedious gameplay. And plus, even when you stop the bad guys, they all end up partying and racing go-karts together. So stuff doesn't make sense anyway. But we all love Mario regardless. And the movie was doomed from the start with multiple rewrites, two inexperienced movie directors, and falling outs between the cast and the crew with the directors. It's kind of like the way Blade Runner was when Ridley Scott had a falling out with his staff. Believe it or not, he had a falling out with his American staff, so he had his British staff come in. And, you know, it's, it's a whole debacle about that. You should check that out in the production notes of the original Blade Runner. And ironically, the two directors of the Super Mario Brothers movie, right, they worked on a well-known popular U.S. and U.K. show back in the 80s called Max Headroom. So if you look at, like, the whole setup of everything that's going on in the Super Mario Brothers movie for, like, the Mushroom Kingdom, that pretty much is a sign of, their, I guess they're just giving a call back to their earlier production, and it works for them. Because, you know, Max Headroom was pretty damn bizarre. But it was enjoyable for its time. It, it had charm to it, you know, because it was a large endeavor for everybody. Like, the movie had horrible sequence building, continuity errors out of the wazoo. And when the brothers finally had their suits on in the movie, that won me over as a kid. The Goombas being very tall men with small lizard heads and some snake-like, you know, that was odd. But hell, it was minimal compared to everything else. I mean... It is so entertaining for me that I had to put it in my top three guilty pleasure. You know, I'll even put it before Tommy Wiseau's The Rum. Yeah, I will give it that cornerstone. And not only that, no matter how bad this movie is, this is still the first movie ever based on a video game property. So you gotta think of all the other video game movies that came in its wake. Like Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, hell Resident Evil with all its sequels. And it's debatable on how many people actually like them. And Prince of Persia, Warcraft, and so on and so on. Because it's never going to stop. Even Sonic is supposed to get a full feature too. And I think Mega Man has a full-length fan film. So, you know, the movie opened a lot of doors for those who are still trying to make a video game movie to satisfy gamers and cinephiles alike. You know, hell, just for the fun of it, I might write a script for a Final Fight movie. So as of this episode, you know, I have to redeem the Super Mario Brothers movie from the bad movie uh, title because it's entertaining, it's cheesy, and sometimes that's all a movie needs. 
if it makes you laugh at it unintentionally, I mean, you're having a good time, right? You know, you don't want to watch a movie just to make you feel sad or all that kind of stuff. I mean, sometimes you want to escape, but if you're escaping and seeing, like, how crazy this movie is from beginning to end, and you're like, gee, what the hell did I just watch? But, oh my god, that didn't happen. Let me rewind that back and see that again. You know? That you're having fun, and then sometimes bad movies can lead to, like, the best viewing parties and the best conversations, so... You know, that's why I can't just call it just a bad movie. I have to go ahead and I have to turn it into a guilty pleasure. So I have to redeem it. See what I'm saying? But, you know, that's just me and my taste. But for those of you out there who probably womanly hate this movie, I'm not sorry. Because I will throw this on in a heartbeat just to sit back and just clock out of reality for a while. You understand what I'm saying? But for those of you that just, um are open to seeing this again and just seeing what accuracies to what's going on in society now. It's just funny how it's truth and fiction. <laughs> I mean, you, you think about it. See, I'm going to go ahead and give you all a challenge to do that. You know, just go ahead and just watch the Super Mario Brothers movie this weekend and tell me whether you enjoyed it or not. You know what I'm saying? You know, and, and I'm talking about not just going up in there biased and saying, oh, you know, Oh, Jay, it wasn't that good and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying clock out and then look at it. Like, don't look at it, like, with um, seriousness in your mind. You know what I'm saying? It's just one of those guilty pleasure kind of films. That's actually all I have for you guys on the J-Man Show this week. Believe it or not, I wanted to talk about the Overcome today, but you know what? I figured that we all need a break. It's too much going on right now. But here's the thing. Episode 17, I'm going to be right back to doing the same thing again. Talking about the dumbness of what is going on out of the White House. And let me tell you this much. I'm also saving the political correctness speech and all the other things that are wrong in society for episode 17. So, you know, because I wanted all of us to get away and talk about some cheesy movies and things. Like, you know, what I would like you all to do is tell me about some of your guilty pleasure movies. You know, email me on j360productions at outlook.com or, you know, send me something at j360productions on Twitter and tell me about your top favorite guilty pleasure movies. Because I know we all have them. We all can't be clear cut and say, oh, I hate this movie. I love this movie. I hate this movie. I love this movie. There's, a, there's always those movies that are in that middle area. I know that there are some of you that like Alien 3. I know there are some of you that do, and that movie sucks. But the thing is, I'm a Fantastic Four fan. I feel no pain. I'll talk movies with y'all and stuff. You know, that's what y'all gotta do. Reach out to me on any of our links and everything else, and yeah, we can talk about this. But outside of that, though, I'd like to thank all of you for coming in and hearing me ramble on and listening to my three top uh, redeemables. And you know, the redeemables that I make on this show, they're final for me. I can't change them or any of that kind of stuff. And not only that, J360 Legion, congratulations. You finally had your double dose of the J-Man show. I may do this again sometime. And shout out to everybody who supported me in doing this endeavor. Especially to the Buffet Boys, S. Anthony Thomas, The Unwritable Rant, M. Retail Slave. Just everybody in the Potter and family, thank you. And guess what? I have plenty more episodes to come. So come on back next week. I want to say Wednesday, but you know, if things get carried over, it'll definitely be on Thursday at 7 p.m. for episode 17 of the J-Man Show. This is Jay signing off. Peace.